That was just because. All right. I love Advent. I love it for lots of reasons. Um, I love Advent because it, it, um, it's a day, it's a season um, of four weeks that prepare us for Christmas. And I like it because for you church folk, it's, it's a little bit like looking over an old newspaper. Like you reread the breaking news. And that's good for all of us to be refreshed in our memory, to renew the wonder of it all. Maybe for those of you who kind of grew up either in churchy spaces or in a churchy country, um, or, it, or maybe even in church, where you remember a semblance of this stuff, and you're cur- curious and cautious to look at it again. Maybe you come from what Walker Percy called the Christ-haunted South, or maybe you just... Um, uh, have, have, it's been around you a lot. I like this for you too, because this is a time, Advent, to discover how much Jesus is like or unlike what your expectations for Jesus are, your grandmother's or your mother's Jesus. And then for those of you who are suspicious of this whole thing, which definitely included me at a certain season in my life, this is great for you or us too. So come with your questions and interrogate the difference of the things you think, the stereotypes that might be out there, and to see if the Bible does a better job of showing you Jesus than, well, we do. Traditionally, it's set apart for four weeks before Christmas to prepare our hearts for the coming, the advent of Christ, or to prepare our hearts for a second coming, the future advent of Christ. And a little secret, it is almost 100% sure that December 25th is not when Jesus was born. Do you know why we celebrate on the 25th and Easter when we do? It's because it's when Christians got the day off. It's the winter solstice. It's a pagan holiday. It's the only holiday we could get off. And that's how it happened. I hope that doesn't bum you out, but we haven't always been part of the empire. That's a whole other sermon series, actually, behind that. So it's this preparing, this waiting, and it's not just about nativity scenes and mangers. Advent is not just about the birth narratives, though it is. It's waiting for even the adult Jesus to begin his ministry on earth, which is what we're doing today, and in his second coming. So all that amazing uh, Greek work that was done over there by Eli with all those Pontius Pilots and Herods and the Tetrarchs and all those other things. I guess Herod wasn't in there, but Herod preceded all those. Or Herod, the Tetrarch, was there. But the reason he was a Tetrarch is because the other Herod died and he split it into four. But you don't really care about that, and that's not my notes. Um, uh, this is to let you know all those times is to basically say, give you a date. See, if you ask me when I was born, I would say, I was born in the fourth year of the reign of Nixon, if I were speaking biblically. Which you would then know, if you did the math, say it was 1972. And that's how they decided their dates. That's how they figured it out. So all those congruence of those people gets you to 29 AD, which is where we are. So it gives us confidence that, that, that and this is really important, that it grounds it in historical reality. Not fairy tales or hearsay, There are plenty of myths about Jesus. 
But what Luke is claiming is this is not a myth. This is historical work that I've done. This is a narrative, but it's a narrative history, not a fictional narrative. Please remember that Christianity is a religion of earthiness, and Advent is the celebration of the waiting on the very incarnation of God in human flesh, in fact, in utero, in time and space, in history, on earth, in an era, in a time and a space with mom and a dad and cousins. The last thing it does is it gives you a sense of a kind of wild, tumultuous time that, that God saw to bring Jesus into. Rome was moving towards consolidating its power because of Herod the Great's being gone, and it was kind of a mess. Having four rulers, tetrarchs, is not a way to oversee a region that used to have one. And having two high priests is also a very bad idea, even if one's a puppet. So it was a very unstable time as an occupied people. But it was also an unstable time for the occupiers to rule over it. And it is into that tumultuous space enter tumultuous John. And in this tumult, he says, he says, I'm going to walk around all the regions. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sin, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, I, this week and this week only, am going to skip the really hard part about the brood of vipers and all that other stuff, but I'm only skipping it to get to it next week. As I was doing this, I was realizing we need to take some time there and sit down a little bit for that one. Uh, so we'll get there. And so on to 15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered, uh-uh. That's in the Greek. I baptize you with water, but he was mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he's clearing the threshing floor of the garage and gathering the wheat into the barn, for the chaff will be burnt in fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. So today we're going to talk about John. I really concentrate a good bit on him, and then we're going to talk about who John's talking about. And that's really what we're going to do today. We will get into the full message of John next week, but now we'll concentrate on this guy, John. And it seems like that's pretty important because in the very text we have today, they're asking, well, exactly who are you again? In other places in the New Testament, um, they're wondering, the crowds are wondering, hey, are you actually the reincarnated or the return of Elijah, the prophet? So it seems like a very legitimate question for us to explore. Who's John? One of the first clues to who John is is actually when he says that, um, the, the, that is John the son of Zechariah. So John, in a very, very simple sense, is Jesus' cousin. That's who he is. Now, he's his crazy cousin who lives off the grid on the outs of town but he's his cousin, and he's totally off the grid. His mama is Elizabeth, sisters with Mary, 
And his dad, Zechariah, has his own little uh, uh, nativity slash advent story as well. But it's a fascinating thing. Even from his birth, even when he was in his mama's womb, there was something particular about John. So John's in his mama's womb. Jesus is in his mama's womb. Mary, Jesus' mom, goes to see Elizabeth, her sister, and John leaps in his mother's womb at the vicinity, the experience, the knowledge, the presence of Jesus. That's kind of hot. That's kind of cool. And that's really odd, which means John's started out a little bit on the side, right? And that's okay, because that's the way prophets are. It also says something about what kind of articulation, what kind of knowledge we have to have in order to have genuine faith. But that's a whole other sermon. So, wild and crazy cousin John. But in a real sense, John is, in the text, it's clear to us that John is actually the last Old Testament prophet. He takes on the very words of one of the main prophets and, and positions himself as such. And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming baptism for repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And how did he do it? As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. And then he takes on those words even for himself and the person he's talking about. Luke is letting us know that John is taking on the mantle of the role of prophecy, fulfilling that prophetic act and preparing the way for the one prophesied to. Remember, I told you in Matthew, some were even confused if John were Elijah returning. In fact, Jesus at one point calls John Elijah and lets it be for people to be confused. You know Jesus by now, that that's, he does that confusion thing a lot, right? So he's taking on this mantle in the full tradition of Israel because whenever something epic is going to happen in salvation history, some prophet comes on the scene, and that's what's happening. And so taking on the words of Isaiah, and in one sense, the, the full tradition of the prophet, including Isaiah, I mean, including Elijah, he begins to speak. But prophecy in the Bible is not fortune-telling. It is not um, always uh, uh, telling, foretelling something that's going to happen. Sometimes it is. But it is always telling forth or speaking forth the word of God. Prophetic doesn't necessarily mean predictive. Please know that. Again, sometimes it does, but prophetic always means taking the word of God and applying it to specific people or to the specific situation in which the people of God find themselves. And John is fully taking on that mantle and proclaiming as the last Old Testament prophet, which also means in the tradition of Old Testament prophets, he's going to have a hard, hard life. He is one in the wilderness, alone. The crazy Uncle John from the family for the family reunion, right? I remember I became a Christian in the charismatic um, movement. And I remember, I, whatever old, how age I was, it was right after I became a Christian, I looked at my mom and I said, Mom, I want to be a prophet. And almost in tears, she looked at me and says, No, you don't. No, you don't. See, prophets don't go to prom, they don't get invited to parties. 
They have to do all sorts of crazy things, like marry women of ill repute just to show how gracious God is. They have to do things like lay on their side for a while just to get up, turn over, and lay on the other side for a while. They walk around half naked with yokes on their backs. And they go live out in the desert off the grid and eat locusts and honey. Honey, not so bad. Locust, not so good. Oh, we're right back at it. Good. Honey and locusts, you've got to put a lot of honey. You've got to, like, catch up that thing. You've got to put as much of it on there as possible. But this is the tradition, the highly honored tradition of a prophet. But do you know why it's highly honored? It's highly honored because it's in the past. It's kind of like the way America dealt with Martin Luther King, right? Everybody loves him now. When he was around, not so much, right? Everybody loves Isaiah, unless you were in Isaiah's day. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, I have pity on you. I want to bring you like chicks to me. But you kill your prophets. And guess what? Happens to John, too. Okay, so he was the cousin. He was the last prophet, and he was the John the baptizer. He was not John the Baptist. He was clearly a Presbyterian. So he's the baptizer. Thanks for the extra little chuckle at the end. I appreciate that. And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. This is actually how the whole story is taking place, right? Groups of Jewish people in the community came out from the towns and the villages and the cities in Jerusalem and went out towards the Jordan and the cross Jordan, all that region area, in order to be baptized for repentance and forgiveness. But baptism then, in this situation here, is not the Trinitarian baptism or Christian baptism that we do. Though there is some overlap, this is a ritual cleansing. It was not uncommon, and there was a particular sect of Judaism that had, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, that you've heard the Qumran or the, um, or the Essenes, they had something like this as part of them. So much so that some people actually thought that John the Baptist was actually one of these folks. It's very unlikely that that's the case for a whole bunch of other reasons. That's, another, that's a Sunday school lesson. Christian baptism is a baptism of being united, not to the idea of Messiah, but to Jesus the Christ, who is the Messiah, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Knowledge of Jesus was not a prerequisite for John's baptism. In fact, when John, when in Acts, which is Luke's sequel, it's part de, when the apostles ask if the converts had been saved or had been baptized, they answer, well, we've had John's baptism. They go, ah, that's cool and all, but we need you to get to a Christian baptism, is what they'd say. So, just because it's not the same thing as what we do, it is still very important. It is a ritual cleansing. It is a turning away from a life of rebellion of God's people into a commitment to follow Yahweh. If you're part of this tradition, it's a rededication. It's an Old Testament rededication. And that really is important because John's purpose here is to proclaim the advent of the Messiah and his salvation. He's not actually even being an evangelist or a pastor. He's being something else. He's being a, 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 a pathmaker, a precursor, a forerunner. When Amanda and I took the kids to Central Park one day, we, went, we were trying to go to that Good Morning America concert series, right? And there's a guy on stage who was trying to get you because the cameras are coming and they want you to be clapping and smiling and all that stuff. So he was getting everybody ready to go. 
And so that when the over, you know, the, the drone or whatever that took the camera over us would see it, it would be a nice, good-looking shot and keep us laughing and ready for Imagine Dragons, which is why we were there, by the way. Really good show, not going to lie. When Springer and I went to the Tyler the Creator concert, there was a guy that went, opened up for him whose whole purpose was to prepare the folks in there to be able to do a mosh pit without getting injured. Now, that's not what he said. He didn't say, hey, I'm here to give you a mosh pit creation, you know, um, t- tutorial. But that's what he did. See, John the Baptist, and I've used this analogy before with you guys, was a hype man. He was a hip-hop artist hype man. And not just any hype man. The, th- the one I think about most closely to is Flava Flav. Now, I don't don't know if you know Flava Flav. If you're my age, you probably do, plus or minus 10 years, know who Flava Flav is. And he would wear this clock. And this, cl- by the way, he, uh, he was the hype man, also a member of Public Enemy. Public Enemy, if you don't know about that, you need to either ask your parents to repent to you uh, so that they'll understand what good hip-hop is and what, how its origins started and what importance it has in the shaping of culture, or just go on YouTube. Um, but, and be careful with the lyrics. Um, anyway, this clock represented what time it is. And what he would say, things are a change. Things are moving. Things are changing. That's also very much a 70s way of talking too, right? Times they are changing. But things were going to be different. And he was also hyping you up for the band. Now, this is all before Flavor Flav got on MTV and sold his soul and all that other stuff. But in one sense, he really was a voice crying in the wilderness, a part of a community, part of something else that was coming, which was public enemy. And he was, he's a lot, or John is doing exactly what Flavor Flav was doing, is telling you that times are changing. He's saying something similar. Prepare, not just for the change, John says, but change that God's people have been, have been anticipating for millennia. You don't, you don't have to keep it there. You can go to the next slide. You can keep it there. Um, many of us have already begun to prepare for Christmas. Gifts and decor. Please hear me. I think this is good and right stuff. Adorning Adorning, I do not know why this is doing this. I think just started reading to me. Peter Bielman, you must have just sent me a text message because it said something, or not text message, but an email earlier. Yeah, probably not now. You weren't doing it then, were you? <laughs> do we need to have a little confession time, buddy? All right. Can't believe you used Flavor Flav. Uh, <laughs> I so badly want to read this now. Anyway. Also not in my notes. Um, <laughs> gifts and decor. I think this is good and right stuff. Adorning a space and spending resources in preparation is a good and right thing, especially when you're preparing for a majestic guest. But they can also be traps for our own indulgences and vanity, right? Excuses to overdo it or just plain show off. And we have to watch ourselves in these things. What makes waiting bearable, though, is, and think about this, what makes waiting bearable is patience and preparation, getting ready. 
And that's what is before us today. This man walking around in the wilderness in his ragtag, probably barely bathed, locust-eating, and honey-wild self. And he's telling people, get ready. Prepare. Make paths straight. And today we'll enter in not so much what he's saying or how we need to prepare, but for whom. We'll tackle the other next week. The voice that cries in the wilderness says, Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. Crooked things shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Prepare the way of the Lord. John says, no, I'm not the guy. There's one greater than me. The king who's become or bringing forth the advent of the kingdom of God. He says, I want you to do topographical, geological, road construction work on you. To ready yourselves. To make straight the paths. To flatten the earth of you as a community and as you and your own hearts. So that there be no hindrance for easy access of the Messiah into your lives. And not just so you will see the one, but so all of flesh will see the world. He is calling us to repentance here. And it is a repentance, a repentance of God's people that results in the evangelism of the world. That's what next week's sermon is. The repentance, specific, hard, difficult repentance of God's people that becomes evangelism to the world, a showcase of the Messiah come. Okay. I just love that they asked him, so this is really weird. You're doing something really important here. Are you Jesus? And he's just like, no, you don't understand. I'm not the one you've been waiting for. The one you've been waiting for is so majestic, so more amazing than anything you can think or imagine, so much better than I am, that I can't even be the one who takes his shoes off. I can't even be a slave to him, legitimately. My mom used to have these awesome, really high heel boots that really, like, for some reason they were, she'd get them on, but she could never get them off when she came home from work. And I would hold on those things and pull on them and pull on them. I couldn't do it. One time, literally, I got it off and it did the back somersault one time. That's not a lie. I'm not even making that up. It's cartoonish. It's not really part of the text. But that's what I'm thinking of when I take the shoes off. John's like, come on, y'all. This is not the end. I don't even totally understand what my cousin's doing. I don't even know if he's mentioned his cousin. I don't even know what this is all going to look like. But I know there is one who is coming. And that time is at hand. And I'm not only not the Christ, I am not worthy to be not just his cousin, but his slave. And when he comes, everything changes. He will not just bring the ritual cleansing that I bring, but he will bring a completely submerged life into the Holy Spirit in the purifying fire of his love. He'll baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. 
He will envelop you with a kindness and will transform the fires meant for your harm into for the very things that make you beautiful. Don't forget, he says, I am the hype man. There is one coming. And when he describes Jesus, he says, or the, the Messiah, he says, the winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to clean out the garage. He's going to clear out the stuff we need and put it in the barn and throw the other stuff and let it burn. This is really important here. And I think you know this if you'll be honest with yourselves. That John is assuming that there is a great temptation when we are dealing with unfulfilled longings, unfulfilled hopes. And not just a great temptation, but the likelihood a great amount of sin in each of us when we have our unmet longings, even good ones. That they're actual failures and sins against God. Let's say you long for more financial security. Y'all, that's, that's not a bad thing. It's really not. We long for this security, but instead of asking for more trust in experiencing the security of God or more blessings to gain some security that we can experience, we do some unethical practices either with our prices just a bit, underpay just enough, Worry about the bottom line as if it was going to be a measure of our actual success in the kingdom. We hoard a little bit more wealth, neglect the poor, and become stingy with our time and talent. Or we flip the script and say, we can never be secure, so just give up and go on spending binges because, you know what, we can't wait either way. And if finance isn't your thing, I could have picked anything topic of sexuality, raising children, marriages, vocational fulfillment, all unmet longings, something similar would run this way. Well, for other people. For all of us. Waiting is so difficult, you probably, like so many others, become distracted by lesser good things and even born of good longings. And so what John says here is repent. He'll do it more specifically in the next weeks, but he's going to say, the message I want to give you clearly, God's people, is repent. Repent. That is such an interesting word. I used to really, really not like this word mostly because it seemed so caustic and angry when it was said. And the other reason was because the people who said it the most seemed like that they were the doing it the least. But I've learned to love this word. Something's flipped in me that now can see how Luke summarizes all this by saying, so, with many other exhortations, he, John, preached good news to the people. When he just said, brood of vipers, who told you to avoid the wrath of God? So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. How is this so? Repentance literally means to turn around. But you're not just turning away from evil to go fix it on your own 
that is another form of folly and faithlessness. No, you turn from pursuing your own senses of security and self-rule. You turn to the Christ himself, the long-awaited Messiah. You turn from sin, but you turn to Jesus. In turning to Jesus, you receive all the pardon and forgiveness and security you could ever need. If you just turn away from sin, you're only halfway there. You turn away from sin and don't go to Jesus, then you're just a train wreck. And all you are is one who's miserable, who's screwed up, right? That's not the gospel. The gospel is, yes, that is all true of me, and I turn all the way around into the one who's brought me into a kingdom full of love and mercy and judgment and all those other things, but a secure place before the living God, the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. Repentance isn't even what John ends with. He ends with the honor and glory of Jesus, his cousin. The hard preparation, the excruciating waiting, the deep conviction and repentance required for all flesh to see, the bulldozing of our hearts, right, is, is to ready the roads of Messiah. And all of that is good news because of who Jesus is, not because of all that hard work. The good news of the, of the gospel is that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited one. The one Genesis said would crush the head of the serpent. The one Moses said was in a more, as a greater prophet than me. The one that Micah said would be born in Bethlehem. The one Zechariah said would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. The one Isaiah who said would be bruised for our transgressions. The government would be upon his shoulders and the one that would bring salvation to the world. It's repent, but it's not repent. It's repent. Friends, Christian or non, if it's been a long while, Christian, or if it's never happened, non-Christian friend, there is such freedom in finally repenting. There is so much freedom. It stinks, but it is okay, because you're not just turning away from the stuff that's killing you, you're turning into the one who gives you life. If you have not had that exhale, I long for that for you. And brothers and sisters, friends, if it had been a while, I long for that for you too. It's a little bit of the reasons why I'm keeping the hardest part of the message of, this, of, Paul, of, of John's words to next service so we can spend some time there. But again, it's for repentance, not repentance. This means that all the religious posturing, y'all, all the code language of Christianity, the, the theological dog whistles, all the treadmills that we get ourselves on, all the exhaustion of putting the best foot forward every time, all the desperate waiting that's been given over to some form of sin or anger or whatever it is, or indulgence, that Jesus has come. And he has worked the ground as we've worked the ground to straighten the paths and be ready to repent to him. And it's why the whole, all of flesh will see Jesus. I'm not sure where you are in this Advent season. Kind of an old, an old timer. 
been doing it a while, peeking your head around the corner again, or really skeptical. But our hope at Redeemer, my hope as a pastor, is that what we would see was not just awesome gifts and gratitude, not even see just acts of service like the overflow shelter, not just even see um, people talking about this one who's come, but that you would actually get a glimpse of Jesus as he's revealed in the scriptures. Because it is a beautiful, exhaling, repentance kind of thing. And he is where life is. Let's pray.